Why don't you get your Bible and turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 3. Uh, and I'm going to continue a series that you asked for called You Asked For It. How about that? And have you enjoyed this series? We've kind of had some interesting talks. Yeah, we've had some very interesting talks. And um, it's, it's been a fun, fun series, I think, for us to enter into. A lot of the Bible is written because people ask questions, whether they were asking a particular person, uh, like the Apostle Paul writes uh, in his uh, epistles, a lot of times answering questions, and Jesus answered a lot of questions. And so it's really kind of how we get a lot of truth is by asking questions. And so we allowed you guys to ask questions, and then we've been trying to answer them, and you guys have asked some difficult questions. And so we have covered um, divorce and remarriage in the church, and we have covered marriage, and we have covered sex, and we have covered ministering to the LGBT community. And today we have another pretty important, I think very important topic, but also not the easiest to talk about. And so again, I'm going to ask you for grace and, and then remind you also, this is what you asked me to speak about. And so, um, and, and, and I think probably out of all the messages in this series that I've shared. And by the way, let me say this about next week. Next week, we end this series, the You Ask For It series, but we're doing You Ask For It live. And what that means is that we're going to have numbers on the screens um, that you can text in live questions during the service, and I will answer them. And so um, you, you, if you already have your questions, you can come. You can make notes of them during this sermon if you want to. But uh, next weekend, when we start the message time, there won't be a message. I'll actually be answering your questions. And so I'll get through as many questions as I can. So all the services will be different. Um, that, that's something that's a little bit uncommon. But all the services will be different because it's going to be based on the questions that you ask during that, that service. And so hopefully you'll come ready to participate. And, and you can ask any question you want. They'll, be, they'll, they'll get them in the back. They'll be anonymous. We won't be tracking phone numbers. They'll get them in the back and they'll send them to me. And then, and then we'll answer as many as we can. But it'll be fun. And so I hope you'll play along and come and just hear God's perspective on a lot of different issues. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. So it's the first time we've ever tried that. So if it completely bombs, we'll never do it again. But I think it's going to be awesome. Um, now, back to this week. I think this week is the message probably I have the greatest burden and have had the greatest burden about um, for quite some time. And, and I'll, I'll explain that because this week I'm going to talk about, um, uh, I'm going to talk about racism and the church. Racism in the church. And um, yeah, that's kind of how it's gone over all weekend. And um, just kind of silence because we're all scared to make a noise. And so, um, and that's okay. I, I think my gift is having awkward conversations sometimes, but, um, <laughs> or maybe my gift is making conversations awkward. I'm not sure uh, which way it is, but, um, but I, I've, I've had a burden for, for some time. And let me explain why. Um, you know, about a year or so ago, I was invited to a lunch, probably represented at that table where, where the pastors, there's, I think, five of us there. It was the pastors of the largest cities in the church. Um, and we were sitting, and I was called to that meeting, invited to it by one of the pastors. And, and the, the whole idea was, how do we address racial reconciliation in, in our community? And, and I need to warn you about something about me. Um, I, I, um, don't ask me my opinion if you don't actually want me to give you my opinion. Because I will give you, and by the way, I have, you can ask the staff, I have an opinion about everything. Like, I am usually not without an opinion about everything. And so don't ask me. I learned very on people come in for counseling, and I would just say, are you wanting me to tell you it's okay? Or are you wanting me to tell you my opinion? 
Like what you want affirmation or wisdom? Which would you like? Because I am good at telling my opinion. And so don't ask me my opinion if you don't want to know my opinion. And so I sat around the table and I listened and these are great men and, and I listened to great ideas and I just listened because that's what I was there to do. And then one of them said, Hey, what do you think? And, and what was on the table was having a big community session where we came together, um, different races and just tried to promote unity. And I said, I, I think two things. And, and I was just, they asked me what I thought. I said, two things. Number one, I think if, if we think that one big come together service is going to solve this problem, we're part of the problem. And I know there's a lot of times people do things and, and they do things and then they feel better and they go home, but it didn't really solve the problem. And I said, so I'm a strategist. And I think if we really want to address this problem, then we should build a five-year plan. I said, the second thing I think is the question on the table is how do we promote racial reconciliation? How do we promote unity among the races? And I said, the problem that I see with the church in our city is we can't even get the white churches unified. So, and, and I said, until we actually want to be unified as pastors in this room and do life together and then invite other people to that table and then go out and be a voice to bring all people groups into that conversation, then I don't, I don't know that it, I, I think that's how you solve it. Um, I don't know what they did after that. I never got invited back, but, um, but, but it burned me. I'll tell you another thing. It burned me is when, when there is, <laughs> don't ask me what I think if you're not prepared. I'm not saying I was right. I'm just saying that's what I was thinking. Um, then, then I, um, Another thing that burdens me is when there's a, a catastrophe, like a shooting, and, um, and it hits the news. What has burdened me is, is um, and I'll, I'll say it this way, some of the ignorant comments from Anglos. And, and I don't think there's another way. It's just, it's misinformed, jaded maybe, but just n not comments that are made in wisdom. And let me explain what I mean. There is a place for facts. Facts matter. Facts are very important. But when someone's son is not coming home or someone's dad is not coming home or someone is now planning a funeral, maybe that's not the time to blow up social media with what the facts are. I mean, how absurd would it be really, honestly, as a pastor, if we had a young family and they had their first baby and the first baby learned to crawl eight months old or whatever, and now this baby is waddling and dawdling and, and crawling and trying to walk, and they had not yet put all the little safety first. If you're a parent, that makes sense to you, because when you have a baby, you've got to baby-proof your house, right? And you, go, and you go to like Toys R Us or Target or wherever you go, and you get all the safety first plug covers and the things that make sure the drawers don't open or the doors won't shut anymore. I don't know why it's unsafe to have an 18-month-old running around with a butcher knife. They've got to grow up sometime, but apparently that is not good parental <laughs> guidance. And so, 
And so you get all these, you know, you, you buy all these safety first products and you cover up all your blood. And how, how absurd would it be if someone in our church, young family, first baby, and they didn't quite get all the plug covers covered, and the baby found a metal object, stuck it in a light socket. Now the baby has died, and I show up at the house as a pastor and say, you know, uh, they, make, they make products so this kind of thing doesn't happen. You know, you could have better educated your nine-month-old on the woes of electricity. You could have taught them how to better respect electricity. You know, if, if you'd have spent more time at home being a parent, then they probably wouldn't have found that light socket. How absurd would that be? A baby's dead. The Bible says we mourn with those who mourn, not discuss the facts. So that burdened me. And, and, then, and then recently um, something happened at our home. And um, as most of you know, we have uh, uh, one of our children that, that came from another country. And we adopted her when she was a baby. She didn't choose that. She didn't choose where she was born. She didn't choose the white people that would come to get her. Um, <laughs> she didn't make those choices. And, um, and most of the time in our home, we forget that she's not, I mean, she's our baby, right? <laughs> Julie and I had a 30-minute conversation one time. It was, it was almost heated over what, what, which side of the family she got this particular trait from. <laughs> and I'm like, I think that's a bull trait. And she's like, no, that's a straight trait. And I was a bullster. And then we realized this baby came from Asia. And so, um, <laughs> so then we laughed at each other. And so like it does, there's no, it's no different to us. We don't even see any differences anymore. We look at our family pictures. That's our family. It's our baby. Um, and uh, we had a situation where she was ridiculed at school um, because of, she didn't look like some of the other students to the point that we had to move her out of class. And so, um, it, I, I, there's no, I don't know if I've ever quite felt what I felt in that moment. And as a, as a dad, um, and as a mama, as a papa, boy, papa bear can come out. And, and I, I really wanted to go because they, apparently they couldn't control the kids and what they were saying. Now, I felt like I could, I could control it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I felt, <laughs> I felt like I could start by helping the parents. And as the Bible says, lay hands on them suddenly. And, and explain the way of the Lord more perfectly to them. And I could do it with veracity. You understand? I mean, I could vigor. I could, I could solve the problem. And, um, and so it just really, it just really became a, a burden for me. And, and so I wanted, when, when you started asking questions, and there were a lot of questions about this, I, I thought we, we need to respond. And to be honest, it's a hard thing, especially for, for, for a white guy. To, to respond to um, because I'm a, I'm a white man in America. And, um, and, and you need to understand, if you don't understand, um, I realized growing up, um, for instance, when, when I went to school, 75% uh, to 80% of the kids in my class looked just like me. Uh, when we opened our history book and learned about the founding fathers, I was looking at picture, pictures of men who, who looked just like me. Um, when we had kids and we went to the bookstore to buy books, baby books, it was very easy to find baby books with pictures of kids who looked like Luke. He was our first baby. Uh, when I got pulled over as a 16-year-old teenager, no one ever asked me to get out of the car, put me in handcuffs, or search my car. 
And, and so maybe we don't want to admit it, but, but I've kind of come to this place as a white man in America. I realize that maybe the experience I've had is not consistent with everyone else's experience all the time and in every situation. Because as a white man in America, I've never, I've never had anyone say anything derogatory about my skin color or my gender. I've never felt any type of limitation based on gender or based on skin color. I've always grown up being told you can do whatever you want to do, go wherever you want to go. And, and I, think, I think maybe, maybe part of this conversation, if you're, if you're an Anglo, if you're Anglican, if you're Caucasian, if you're white, maybe part of this is to say, hey, when, when, when we act like our experience and our lenses are exactly the way everyone else's is, and then we say kind of silly things that, that judge people and draw that, well, they could just go to college like I, well, they could just do that, well, they could just do this. Well, who is they? And why are they a they? And so, to be honest, when we talked about doing a message on this topic, I, I, I look for the easy way out. I have some African-American pastor friends of mine. I start calling them to see if they want to come speak. Um, like, come help me, brother. <laughs> you know, let's pray Jesus. You know, we'll do it together. And, and they, they couldn't come. And so um, I realized... <laughs> I realize that, that you're stuck with me, but I thought maybe my perspective is, is the one, and maybe there's some things here that, that we maybe need to talk about, and, and, and for us to just assume that everyone has had the same experience in every situation, um, it may not be the case. Does that make sense? Yeah. There may, may, may be some unseen privilege in some areas that, that we really haven't ever, because we've always seen the world this way and had this experience, and so maybe that's, that's part of the conversation, I think, that maybe needs to be had in, in the church. In, need to talk some things out. And so I'm going to talk about, with God's help, racism. Um, and, and really my goal today is, is for us really to kind of evaluate ourselves. It's kind of my goal. I think that's really, I think that's what the Bible's for. Believe it or not, the Bible is not a window to look through to help other people as much as it is a mirror to look into to help yourself. And, and so today I, I just want to, I want to talk about this. And, um, and so, uh, three things that, that, that I want to point out. And the first one is this, you're taking notes. The first one is, I think racism opposes Christ. Now let me explain racism and we'll come back to this, but I think racism opposes Christ. Racism to me has three facets, three facets of racism. Number one is the obvious. We saw it very clearly in the history books, or if you were alive during this time in the 1950s, 1960s, uh, when the civil rights uh, movement began, when, thank God, Rosa Parks said, you know what, I don't think I'm going to get up just because of the color of my skin. And to me, thank God, this is my America, that it would be absurd for me today to think that someone had to move seats because of their skin color because I didn't grow up in a segregated America. Um, there's still bias, and I've still seen it. I've still experienced it, but, but I didn't grow up in a segregated America. And so to me, the thought that someone would have to, especially a sweet little lady, would have to give up her seat on a bus because the color of her skin is just completely absurd in my thinking, and I thank God for that, right? But it started, and we saw, all of a sudden, we saw hatred because of color. And we saw it from Christians, 
And so we're talking about the fastest races. The number one is the obvious, the hatred because of skin color. The second one is a belief of superiority or inferiority based on skin color. And then the third one I think is a little more subtle, but it's just prejudice because of skin color. And so when we're talking about racism, it may not look like hatred. The question could be, is there a prejudice? Um, I think racism opposes Christ, and I'll tell you why. Because I think Christ came to take all people and make one people. In fact, Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you are all, it doesn't say all white people. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. You're all sons of God. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's, there's kind of your racism reference, if you will. Jews and Greeks, right? There's neither Jew nor Greek. In other words, there, there's no longer racist. There's, there's not slave or free, and there's not male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. This is the mission for which Jesus came. I, I think sometimes when we're, um, when we're looking at the Bible, we don't realize that there are all different races throughout the Bible. We don't realize there are all different skin tones throughout the Bible. In fact, um, we know Adam and Eve. Um, <laughs> if you go in any nursery, right, and there's a mural painted, most of the time Adam and Eve are these beautiful, fair-skinned, Anglican-looking people, right? But yet somehow all the races of the world came out of those two people. So how'd that happen? In fact, most theologians believe as do I, and I'll read a scripture about it later, but that talks about all the nations, all the people groups coming out of those people, Adam and Eve. Most theologians believe that Adam and Eve were brown-skinned people. In fact, if you look at all the people of the world, the dominant skin pigment is, is our skin pigmentation is brown, not, not white, it's brown. So most theologians believe that Adam and Eve had brown skin because encoded in their DNA was, was, was all the DNA that was necessary to produce all the different variations of skin pigmentation that we see today. That's why I think Adam and Eve are probably the most beautiful people in the world. Right? And so we know Adam and Eve and man, and then God starts over with Noah, and Noah has three sons, Ham, Japheth, and Shem. Right? And I think their names are important because a lot of times they would name the baby. They didn't go like to Barnes & Noble and say, we need a baby name book. We need to Google some names. They didn't do that. The baby would be born and they would say, Esau, he's hairy, he's red. That's what it means, right? So, so Noah and Mrs. Noah are having babies and, and they have Ham and they name him Ham. What does Ham mean? It means hot or black skinned. And then they have Japheth. What does it mean? Faith or white skinned. And then they have Shem. What does Shem mean? Name. They're running out of creativity. (laughs) Ham, Japheth. What should we name him? Name. (laughs) There are no baby books. Anyways, um, and and most most theologians would believe that really um, Shem was brown skinned. Because think about it, if you have brown skin, you can get lighter skin or darker skin, but but it doesn't work as well the other ways. And so they think Adam and Eve had brown skin and Shem probably had brown skin. And so with Noah's three sons, we're kind of representative of the different skin pigmentations from which we experience today. And so a lot of people, a lot of people don't, don't know that. A lot of people don't know that um, 
the man who carried Jesus' cross for him when Jesus stumbled and fell because his body was too weak to carry his cross, he was Simon from Cyrene. Cyrene is northern Africa. Simon was a black-skinned man. And that's who God chose to carry the cross of Jesus. And again, if you, if you go down to the bookstore and you look for these pictures, you're probably not going to see it displayed like that. And that's why I think part of me, part, and I don't mean this in a bad way because I'm, I'm a white person, obviously, but I think part of this is sometimes we as Anglicans need to have our perspective widened just a little bit Amen. to understand there's more going on than, than maybe what we've always seen. In fact, if you study Acts 13, when, when Paul and Barnabas are sent out on their first missionary journey, they're sent out from a church called Antioch. It was the church at Antioch. And it had five elders, five main elders, five main leaders. Two of the five were black-skinned men. Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger, obviously, where we get the slain word, but Niger means black. Simeon, who, who was called Niger, he was a black-skinned man. right? And then Lucius, who was from Cyrene, again, northern Africa, he would have been a black-skinned man. And so two, two of the five leaders of the church of Antioch, which was one of the most powerful movements in the New Testament, two, at, least, at least two, but two, were black-skinned men. When, when, when God moved on the day of Pentecost, there were people from all different nations who were gathered there. And if you read the nations, you're going to see that people who were impacted and influenced by, by the, on the day of Pentecost were, were just as much black-skinned as they were white-skinned or any other skin. And so we need to know that, that God had this plan where God created all these colors of skin because God thought it was awesome and it was God's plan. And it wasn't, one wasn't superior or inferior. One wasn't right. One wasn't wrong. One wasn't favored or more than the other. But this was God's plan. This is what God wanted. And Jesus came. Jesus came as the great unifier to make one people out of all of these different people groups. In fact, we see a picture of heaven in Revelation 5, 9. It says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. Watch this. And by your blood, by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you see that? And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. That's what heaven looks like. It's what it's supposed to look like. I told the worship team one time, I said, I won't be happy until every song we do on a Sunday morning is a different language. Because to me, that's what heaven's going to look like. Only there we'll be able to understand it. But here, we'll just have to guess. Believe it or not, <laughs> believe it or not, you can worship if you don't know what they're saying. Right? If you don't understand, it's okay. But this is the mission of Jesus. And so racism, to me, is an opposition of the mission of Jesus. Here's the second one, the obvious one, I think, and that is racism is sin. Racism is sin. Um, let me give you kind of some thoughts on this. Number one, I think racism is evil. First John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So racism, I think, is evil. Number two, I think racism is supremism or supremacism. Colossians 3.11 says, Here in Christ there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. 
So where God's concerned, there's never superiority. There's never, there's never one more supreme. There's never inferiority. Christ is in all. Christ is all. The cross, the cross is the great um, unifier. It, it makes everyone equal because it takes the same amount of grace and the same amount of blood to redeem an Anglican as it does an African-American. It's the great qualifier, if you will. Racism, I think, um, undermines the great commission. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The word nations actually means people groups. Go make disciples of all people groups. Um, I think the, the fourth one, racism, racism undermines the great commandment. What's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like it. The second is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus had to explain who their neighbor was because Jews were taught to love their Jewish neighbor. And so they said, hey, Jesus, who's our neighbor? And he tells a story that if I were preaching in the 1950s, it would sound like this. They said, who's our neighbor? And Jesus said, well, you see, there was this, this white man, and he was on his, road, on his way somewhere, and he was jumped by some other white man and beaten up. And then, and then a Levite came, and he was going to minister to him, but he was late for something that was very important. And, and then also he was purified and clean and didn't want to touch. He didn't know if the man was dead or not. And so he just kept going. And then a priest came, but he was late for a priest meeting. And so then he went on. And by the way, it would have been a white Levite and a white priest and a white man laying on the... And they said, and then an African-American man came by. And he went over and checked on the man and found out he was still alive. And he, he did his best to do CPR and 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 stabilize him, and then he carried him to a place where they could help him, and then he paid the bill in advance to make sure he got the care that he needed. That's how it had been told in the 1950s. In, in Jesus' day, he said it this way. There was a Jewish man that got beat up, and then a Jewish priest and a Jewish Levite, and they all walked by, and then this Samaritan came. Jews hated Samaritans. There was a huge racial issue with Samaritans, so much so that Jews didn't go through Samaria. They would walk around Samaria. Like one day Jesus looked at his disciples and said, we had to go through Samaria. And they like grab his, his phone like, man, Siri's messing with you, Jesus. Can't be going through Samaria. Siri, reroute, recalculate. Jesus, you need the Waze app. You don't need to be using Siri. Because Jews, Jews didn't go, they didn't go through Samaria. And the next thing you know, Jesus goes through Samaria and he sends the disciples to Waterburger. And then the Samaritan woman shows up, and the next thing you know, Jesus is like, hey, why don't you give me a drink from your water bucket? And thank God I didn't live at this time, but, but she's like, hey, wait a second. Your race doesn't drink from this water fountain. And that's how bad it was. Like, she's freaked out. Like, you need your own bucket, but you're at the wrong well. I imagine his disciples dropped the water burger when they came back. Like, holy cow, what's he doing? We're Jews. She's not our neighbor. Jewish people are our neighbors. And so I think that, that racism undermines the, 
the great commandment, which is to love your neighbor. You know what Jesus was actually saying in this, the parable of the Good Samaritan to the good Jewish people? He was saying, hey, you want to know who your neighbor is? It's the person whose skin doesn't look like yours. That's pretty much, if you boil it down, that's what he was saying. It's the person who doesn't look like you. That's, that's who your neighbor is. That's the one you help. That's the one you love like you love yourself. And so I think it undermines the great commandment. I think racism essentially defies God. Here's the scripture I told you about, Acts 17, 26, and it says, And he made from one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He made from one man. God had this one beautiful plan to make Adam and Eve and from them get all the deviations and skin pigmentation that exists today. And from all of those beautiful people have one people. That was his, the Bible says, John three sixteen for God so loved the world, the world that he gave his only son. And so I think... <clears throat> I think racism is a sin. Here, here's the last thing. I think racism is the church's responsibility. I don't know if you've noticed. I, I've noticed a trend over the last you know, lifetime that I've lived. And, and um, the trend that I've seen is that it seems to me that politicians are not the most effective people to get anything done. Have you all seen that? It almost, it's almost like it doesn't matter who's actually in the White House uh, um, and, and who's actually in the Congress or who has control. It just seems to me we can't seem to get some simple things done. Are, are you with me? I, was, it, was it Ronald Reagan who said the, the, the scariest thing you can hear is, we're the government and we're here to help? Is that Ronald Reagan's quote? And, and so to me, I think that we need to acknowledge one thing, and, and, and I hope this doesn't offend you. But um, we need to acknowledge that the media as it exists today is the most dividing force at work in America. So I think we need to acknowledge that. Someone said, do you watch the news? My answer, no, because it's not news. It's a bunch of jacked up opinions aimed at dividing people. And they're going to divide them however they can, whether it's by race or by gender or socioeconomic class or by religion. They're going to work constantly to set one side against the other and divide this one against that one and the rich from the poor. Right? Watch. Doesn't matter because every, every president has tried to address taxes. And as soon as he does, we divide the rich and the poor. And as soon as there's a calamity, we divide, right? We divide this race from that race or this gender from that gender or a gun owner from a, a person that doesn't want to own a gun. I'm not going to talk about that one, but I have some strong feelings. <laughs> but you can ask for it next week during Ask For It Live if you want my opinion on that. <laughs> And so even though, you know, the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964 was signed by, by Lyndon B. Johnson and, and that set a, a great pace for America, it, it changed some great things. But I think if we're sitting here thinking, well, the work's done, I think we're part of the problem. If not, we're, we're certainly not part of the solution. And, and I don't think we need the politicians or the media because I don't think they can really help 
Because you can't legislate morality. It's really not their responsibility, is it? And the media is going to work to, to divide because that makes more news. In fact, now we actually literally, and this is true, you can search it out if you want to. Now we have uh, um, activists, I guess is what you'd call them. I wouldn't call them that because activists could be a good thing. Uh, we have idiots um, <laughs> who, who actually pay people and bust them in to start riots. Yeah. One of them has an extraordinary amount of money. And, and he pays them good salary, good benefits, buses them in, start a riot, and then go to the next town. And then the media shows up to cover the riot. And then people get outraged. And so I think there's still work to be done, and I think the church has to do the work. Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King said this. He said, it is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And while I would say we've, we've come some ways in this, I, to me, we still have some ways to go. In fact, when, when we started Pathway, I prayed. I said, God, and, and back then I didn't know better. I'm an ignorant white person. Um, but I said, God, I want to see a racially diverse church. I want to see a racially diverse church because I think that's what heaven looks like. I think that's what Jesus is all about. I think that's, that's the way it needs to be. And, and I want to see all people, all different, all different kinds of people gathering together, worshiping in Jesus, because I think that's as close to heaven as you can get. And, and now, even though that's not a bad thing to say, I've decided my new term is we're not a racially diverse church. We're a racially blessed church. We're a racially blessed church. And, and I think there's still some work to do. And I think, I think the church has to lead the way. And here's why. Because I think the church has to be about kingdom and not culture. When we put culture above kingdom, we're always going to have division. When we put kingdom above culture, we're always going to win. We, we, we are here because a king came. And a king came and, and he ransomed all people, all tribes, all nations, all tongues. He ransomed us to make us his people. And so we got to put the kingdom in the proper place. Seek first the kingdom. And so when we embrace kingdom first and culture second, we start moving towards solution. And as long as we put culture above kingdom, we're going to continue to have division. And so I think the whole message of the cross is kingdom first. In fact, I can show you this in Ephesians 2.14. The kingdom is the solution for divisions among culture because it says Jesus is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is talking about the racial divide in the early church. That's the context. By abolishing the law, the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I think it's the, the calling of Christ, the mission of Jesus, and the cause of the church that is supposed to respond to the issue of racism. I think, I think Jesus is the answer, if you will, for, for, for racism. And, and if you look at the civil rights movement, it wasn't led by a politician. It, it was led by the church. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Unfortunately, it was predominantly led by the African-American church because the Anglican church was either too scared to speak up or too much lost in their own bigotry. I love creating awkward moments. <laughs> but I, I think we need to be honest. Right? I think we need to be honest. And yes, there, there were certainly white people involved, and thank God for them. But it was predominantly led by 
by the African-American church. And what would have happened if, if the Anglican church could have gotten involved? What would happen today if the Anglican voice, if the white believers, if you will, started speaking out for unity and reconciliation and stopped turning our head and hiding, taking sanctuary in our sanctuaries and acting like there's not a war out there? Well, we'll see how many people are back next week. <laughs> you, you asked for it. <laughs> I really think the church has the lead. Dr. King said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Where do light and love come from? So what is the solution? Where's the solution going to... solution is always going to come from the church. We're the representatives of the kingdom of God on this earth. And we don't need to wait on God. We need to be God's hands and feet. And we certainly don't need to wait on the media or the politician. Yes, for real. Jesus, heal him, Lord. I think the church has to have an answer and the church has to have a response. And if the church doesn't have an answer, we're not really the hope of the world at all. So for us to gather and sing and say, we are the hope of the world, and then to say, we have no answer for what's going on in our world, we're not really the hope of the world. Are, are you with me? And so I think we, we need to get involved. And, and how do we get involved? Okay, well, put on your big boy panties. Um, I don't know another way to say it, and hope that doesn't offend you. And if it does, then God bless you. And I'm sorry. And, um, but, but I think that... that Revival doesn't start with the people. It starts with the person. We can pray for revival or we can become one. And so if we're really going to solve the problem, where it starts is when we deal with ourselves. When, when we investigate our own heart to see if there's bias. I had a friend one time, and it was kind of interesting to me because I noticed any time he was referencing a person who was not an Anglo he had to tell me their ethnicity. Now, I don't think he was a racist. and I, I, I certainly saw love from him for, for all people. But it was just interesting, you know, and he was like, hey, I was having friend, you know, lunch with my friend, you know, John. He, he's re really Hispanic. And I'm like, why can't he just be your friend? Why does he have to be your Hispanic friend? Does, like, having a Hispanic friend make you feel less racist? Like, if you're telling a story about a person and you've got to reference their color when it has no context on the story, you might ask yourself why. Now, if you're talking about your friend John who's Hispanic and he made tacos, there's instant credibility there. <laughs> right? Because Anglicans, we're making stew or something dumb. We're not making good tacos. Right? And he said, well, John made tacos. I'm like, uh, can John, but if you say, well, John, you know, who's from Guatemala, made, I'm like, okay, hang on. Like, tell me about it. <laughs> right? Or I guess really John from Mexico, that's good tacos. I've never had tacos in Guatemala. Oh, well. So anyways... Um, funniest joke ever, Julie and I used to do tons of mission work in Honduras and people say, must be great to eat Mexican food all the time. I'm like, brother, did you study geography? Because Honduras is not in Mexico. They have Honduran food. It's not as good as Mexican food, honestly. 
There are these things they make called baleadas, and they will give you revival there for breakfast. I don't have time to explain it, but Jesus could come if you had a baleada. But anyways, <laughs> that's, that's a different story. But I think, I think honestly, and back to my point, if we're going to solve the problem, we have to look, I think we have to start by, um, we have to start by looking into our own selves. The great psalmist, um, the great psalmist said, I'm talking to the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. You remember him? Time to make a change. You know that, you remember the great psalmist. Anyways, but, but I think it, it rings true that, that, that where change begins is always in the mirror, not in the window. And, and so I think that we, we have to, to look at ourselves. In fact, um, James 2 verse 9, it says this. It says, if you show partiality, you're committing sin. It doesn't say if you show hatred. And, and I understand in this context, it's socioeconomic partiality or favoritism is the context. But favoritism is favoritism. Romans 2 says that God never shows favoritism. So, so God doesn't have favorites. He doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't show par- partiality. And what James is saying is we start showing partiality, then we're sinning because that doesn't come from God. And it doesn't matter if that's socioeconomic or whether that's race or whether that's gender. If we're showing partiality, we're sinning. And so I think we have to look and say, hey, is there, is there, is there anything in me? Is there any type of bias in me? And we, we really have to, listen, to be honest, you, you can't actually examine your own heart. Right? You really can't. I know when you get sick, you go on WebMD and try to figure out what you have, but you really can't do that when it comes to your heart. Because the Bible says our hearts deceive us. Your heart will hide the bad stuff in the corner where the light doesn't show and put the light shining on the other side of the corridor where the good stuff is. Your heart will deceive you. And that's why we have to ask God to search our hearts. In fact, um, David, King David, a man in the Bible... He had more favor from God probably than anyone else in the Bible, maybe except Solomon. I don't know how you exactly measure favor, but here's what I do know is that he had so much favor from God that God actually said to David, I'm going to let my son be called by your name. And so Jesus was known as the son of David. That's favor, right? But how did he get there? Well, I think he got there because he had this prayer that he would pray. We see it in Psalm 139, 23. When he said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Why didn't he search his own heart? Because you can't. Your heart will lie to you. He said, God, I know I can lie to me, but you're not going to lie to me. So you search, your, you search my heart and you test me and you know my thoughts and you point out anything in me that offends you. A prayer God will always answer. God, what do I need to change? That is a prayer he will always answer. I don't think this is the only time David prayed this prayer. I think this was probably his Monday morning prayer. Right? Search me. Know my, know my heart. Know my thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. And I think this is, this, is where, this is where we have to start. This is where we have to start. I think we have to start with us. And after we start with us, then we can use our voice, our position, our place, then, then we can affect others. But until we really start with us and make sure that there's not something in us and make sure that, that we're seeing everything a little more clearly and we're understanding a little bit more of what is going on, then I think that's where we have to start. 
I think we can look at the man in the mirror and we can make some changes. And if we all start making changes, it makes changes in our families and changes in our churches. And then it gives us the wherewithal to affect and influence our communities and our nation. And so I, that's where I'm going to land the plane. I'm going to ask you to stand. And um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'll give you one more quote that... that I never had read this quote before. It's from Dr. King, but he said, the hottest place in hell is reserved for those who remain neutral in times of great moral conflict. And it, it, to me, it was stirring to say, hey, the Bible says to know to do good and not do it, that's sin. And I think as the church, we have, we, we're light and we're love. And we need to let God search our hearts, make sure that, that our hearts are in the right place, and then we need to do something. We need to do something. Um, I, I think the church is the hope of the world. I think the church is the hope of this city. I think the church is the hope of this nation. And right now our nation needs some hope. And we're the ones that have it. And so we need to let God work in us and then work through us. Will you bow your heads with me and... And I want us to take a moment and, and, and with our heads bowed, I wonder if we could be as bold as David <clears throat> and say where it pertains to this issue of racism, of bias. Um, the word prejudice means to prejudge. That's a bias. In other words, to, to make an assessment about someone you don't know based on the color of their skin. That would be a bias, a prejudice. And just, I've asked God this, this weekend if he would bring up, really stir up anything in us that, that needs to be dealt with because this is where the movement starts. And so I'm going to ask you with our heads bowed, if you'd be so bold. And by the way, I think that, that prejudice can, can go a lot of different ways because I know it, it, with what I walk through with, with our family, when you feel like there's a bias against you, you can also develop a bias against them. And that happens. And I got to thinking, if I'd been watching, it gave me a different perspective. I thought if I'd been watching social media and the news and all this from this perspective, I, I might have a bias against Anglicans. And if I watch from this perspective, because it's trying to divide. And so I think we have to be, I think we have to be honest. And so with our heads bowed, would you be so bold? Would you be so bold as to ask God to search your heart? <clears throat>